Okay, hi and welcome to episode 16 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today I have with me uh, Dr. Craig Sale from Nottingham Trent University, um, a, a reader and a researcher uh, and very much an international expert on a number of uh, topics. Uh, I know many of the listeners um, have uh, read much of uh, Craig's work and uh, for those of us in the UK, particularly those on the ISSN diploma program, we've, we've been very lucky to have uh, Craig on and lectured to us on things like uh, bone bone metabolism, bone health, uh, buffers and, uh, and creatine, of course. So, um, hi Craig, how are you doing? Hello, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Brilliant. Yeah, it's all good. Um, so, this, uh, this could be a, 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 a historic podcast because, um, of course, we tried to do this podcast about five times. <laughs> so, uh, technological disasters and whatnot. So, hopefully, we're not going to let, let ourselves down or the, uh, or the listeners because I know this is a, this is a really interesting topic. We, we've, we've gotten into all kinds of things on the last 15 podcasts, um, mostly... Uh, uh, sort of rocket scientists and uh, professors and, and whatnot. There's a few practitioners and so on. We've certainly gotten into the science. Uh, we've done quite a bit of uh, applied stuff with various people. Um, and we have gotten into various kinds of supplements. But of course, as as we certainly know, uh, the popularity of supplements, particularly in the sports field, is um, far greater than it should be deserved because an awful lot of them really don't do anything. They're over-marketed, over-hyped. There isn't really some really, there isn't a whole lot of good science behind much of them. But, I mean, it, it, it's fair to say, isn't it, that of all of them, creatine or specifically creatine monohydrate, it's got to be, it's got to be up there with, if not is, the most researched of all supplements. Isn't that right? Well, certainly, so I suppose it depends on exactly how you're defining the supplement and if you're including things like carbohydrate and stuff in that. But I would certainly suggest that, yeah, creatine is, is definitely up there as one of the, the most researched. Yeah. And it's one of those interesting things with, with supplements. I think sometimes you have to get a little bit away from this whole do supplements work, don't they work type thing and focus on the situations where they may or may not work. Ah, I think I think you're, what you're meaning to say there is context. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've said context about fifty <laughs> times per episode uh, on this podcast. But yeah, it is very context specific, and I'll never get bored saying that. Uh, so look, let's. Um, I've got a very because this could be a very complex topic, um, and of course, you certainly know your your stuff on this. So I, I want to take advantage of all your knowledge about creatine. But before we we get into creatine, um, you know what it what you know what what it is, how it works, and so on, um, uh, and particularly how it should be applied. Speaking of context, can you just sort of quickly explain to us what creatine is and and why we might need to might might actually need it? Yeah, so, so creatine is a, a naturally occurring nutrient that was sort of first identified in, in meat in about the 1830s. Um, and it was identified by a French chemist called uh, Michel Chevreul. Um, I probably completely uh, messed up the French there, but nonetheless, close enough. Um, but um, so he was quite an interesting guy. He, he also sort of discovered other chemical compounds of animal fats. And even some of his theories on, on colour influenced some of the French painters of the period, apparently. So he's quite an, an interesting wow. chap. Yeah. But um, 
he sort of, you know, first sort of identified it in meat products. And then it wasn't really until, I guess, kind of the mid-1920s that it, it was noticed that there was a phosphorylated form of, of creatine, and it was broken, and that was broken down during contraction and then resynthesized during recovery. And so that's kind of fairly important to the whole sort of creatine story, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a bit. Mm. Um, but I guess most importantly to, to the, the creatine story, I guess, um, certainly as far as exercises performance is concerned anyway, um, was the discovery of the muscle biopsy needle. Because what that allowed us to do was to, to show that there was a, an important role for phosphorylcreatine in the resynthesis of ATP in the, in the contracting muscle. So that's kind of broadly what it does. And then eventually, I guess, following the work coming out of uh, Eric Haltman's lab with Roger Harris and Paul Greenhalf and others, it led to the question of whether supplementing the diet with creatine could increase the creatine stores in the muscle and therefore we could favorably influence high intensity exercise performance. So this is kind of where we've got to the, this modern day position of, of, as you said, creatine monohydrate being one of the, the biggest selling sports su supplements. Yeah. So I guess, um, you know, it, I mean, we know that it's it, it, it's effective and we'll get into that in a minute, but uh, it's referred to as an ergogenic supplement. Do you want to sort of explain what we mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think ergogenic just sort of, I mean, you take it you know, back to its sort of um, primary roots. It, it, it primarily rates, uh, relates to an ability to, or something that has the ability to increase the amount of work we can do. Obviously, from a sports science point of view, we're, we're sort of more looking at, at that term with reference to our, an ability of something to increase our, our exercise performance, either, either performance specifically or, or our exercise capacity. Yeah. So I, I, there's all kinds of thoughts that are swirling around in my head here, um, which I shall certainly deconstruct. But the the first thought is, you know, we've we've mentioned the word supplement, but of course it doesn't have to be consumed as a supplement, does it? It it is actually something that we get from the diet. No, it, it is a naturally occurring uh, nutrient, and and you can you can also synthesize creatine in the body. So. You can get creatine in the body either basically by direct synthesis or by creatine intake in the diet. Yeah, so it, because many of the listeners are going to be thinking, um, you know, uh, do I need creatine, which we'll answer in a second, and, you know, uh, why would I want to supplement it? What are the scenarios and, and so on? So I guess let's let's sort of systematically get into these different things. So we know that, that it's actually made in the body. Uh, it is found in food. What, I mean, what kind of foods would we find creatine? So you're, you're usually talking about sort of uh, meat, uh, fish products, really. There's there's small amounts in some other things, but but primarily what you're talking about really is is meat with some types of fish being being particularly high in creatine also. Yeah, because I, uh, and we'll get into the whole loading and dosing thing in a minute, but since I'm thinking of this, uh, I mean, I, I remember from one of your lectures, I think it was it was you, you were, you were talking about where um, it is possible even for some people to achieve sort of a, a full creatine load uh, just from eating uh, lots of red meat. And, and, and that has been the case um, in some of the studies uh, on, on certain sort of, you know, heavy uh, meat eating populations. Is, is that, do I remember that right? Yeah, but it's certainly possible to get to a to a level um, that um, 
that, that might increase the content of of the muscle. I mean, whether you can really optimally load just on on food or not is a, is a kind of different uh, kettle of fish. I guess you'd probably need to eat in excess of around sort of half at the low end to one kilo of raw meat really to be able to attain uh, <laughs> satisfactory levels to really load the, the muscle properly. I guess, but I mean, and that's probably outside of you know exactly what we're you know what we would ideally like to eat in any given time but yeah um, yeah i mean yeah and obviously there's going to be there's some potential health implications for the types of red meat and how it's cooked and yeah exactly so on and so forth so i think it, it, i mean it's fair to say that that it, it, it's a it's a good idea to uh consider supplementation with creatine so what i mean what are the so you know why should we take creatine um and in what what areas do you think creatine is most applicable? Well, obviously, we've started out from very much the point of view, as I said, of looking at it in terms of sort of um, high-intensity exercise performance, where there might be some beneficial effect um, to the energetics of the, of the muscle. Um, and then more, more recently, we've sort of seen evidence or some suggestions that creatine might also be beneficial in certain or, or have certain sort of neuroprotective or cardioprotective effects. Um, there's some quite interesting, uh, quite interesting meta-analysis that came out of uh, Stu Phillips' lab recently that was showing that there might be some beneficial effects um, of creatine supplementation in addition to resistance exercise training in the older individual. Um, it might be able to increase some of those adaptations uh, of the muscle. Um, so, um, I guess the, the the potential use of creatine is 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 pretty wide and varied, right? The way from the from the person who's very very interested in improving their their sport and exercise performance to um, the person who's very very interested in in resistance training and maximising uh, adaptations from resistance training, and even through to you know, people with certain certain uh, disorders, and um, you know, age, the aging population. So potentially, it's pretty wide and varied. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? So you know, because I guess some of the listeners will be thinking, "Well, I don't need creatine," um, but actually, if you consider that there are implications not just for its role in uh, supporting training adaptations, but of course, there's a health perspective and I know that I think it's later this year um, uh, when I was at the ISSN conference I was uh, uh, um, talking to and also flew back um, sitting next to Roger Harris which is a uh, 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 another subject because I learned a lot just from that. That's a learning flight. experience. Oh man, I could tell you a nine-hour flight sitting next to Roger Harris. I got I got a PhD just from that flight. <laughs> uh, but uh, he was telling me about that. There's um, a big conference in Bavaria coming up. Uh, where all the sort of many of the great minds are you, are you attending that event uh, i'm still sort of hoping to but it's one of those where you know the amount of available research funding that may limit attendance right yeah but if i can i'll certainly be there because it, it looks like a really really good program the, the last one was in uh, cambridge i think it was in sort of 2010 yeah and that was a, a really excellent meeting and uh, this one looks to be equally as good if not slightly better so yeah well we'll definitely do another podcast um after that because i think it's quite interesting to develop this concept a bit more about um you know supporting athletes not just from the perspective of 
how we typically view performance, you know, like uh, speed, power, that sort of thing, which is one thing we think about with creatine, but also this idea of improving health generally. Um, and a healthy a- athlete is a, is a better athlete. A healthy athlete is a safer athlete. A healthy athlete is, you know, there's nothing but positives to that. And I think that normally people wouldn't normally regard creatine as, as something that's specifically applied to the health of a person. It's merely a, you know, like an ergogenic aid or something. So I think there's more more to come on that topic. But um, the, the one thing that does come up when you talk to people about creatine, and, and we'll get into the rocket science a bit more um, on this, but the first thing that that I think we need we need to clear up is the safety record of creatine because you do hear people talk about ah oh, you know it's um, it's potentially a problem um, uh, in differing scenarios. Do you want to sort of clear clear this up for us? Um, well, there are yeah there are a number of concerns that were um, sort of put forward about creatine and, and and the safety of creatine at various points. And I guess one of the first things to say about that is there aren't that many studies that have really looked at long-term continuous use of creatine on any kind of outcome really um but i mean again i suppose as well i'm sure we might get into in a bit it depends what exactly what sort of type of formulation or variant of creatine you're talking about but if we sort of talk about you know creatine monohydrate i guess which is probably the most common form of creatine that's available on the market um, then, you know, obviously there's a reasonable amount of information about that supplement um, that's been gathered because, you know, creatine monohydrate will undoubtedly be, or is, is undoubtedly the most researched of the, of the, of the variants. Yeah. Um, there, is, there, is, there are some reports for, of reasonably minor sort of type symptoms with, with creatine supplementation. So, you know, some of the gastrointestinal distress that you get uh often and there are anecdotal reports of some cardiovascular and muscular sort you know type problems but um certainly it's one of those things that's that's sort of you know frequently comes under question and comes under fire uh every now and again but um one of the things that that that, that sort of a few years back really sort of made people sit up and notice a little bit was this issue of whether it was safe for the the kidney and whether the, some of the, the the byproducts of creatine that were being produced um, were actually carcinogenic and whether these sort of compounds were reaching toxic levels. But generally speaking, there was some, some decent work from um, Jack Portman's lab. It was largely showing that that although some of these byproducts are produced, they don't ever really get to levels that are, are particularly toxic unless you start to uh, abuse the the supplement and take it in, in far greater quantities than are, are really required so well, there's a lot of anecdotal in, information but a lot of the, the published information that is out there suggests that it's a relatively safe supplement um, in as much as the information we've got within that context is concerned so you know like I said there's always that caveat that you know there aren't that many really long-term continuous supplementation studies that have looked at um, the safety aspect of it but but certainly in the in the short-term sort of loading studies that, that we've done and that I'm aware of from other groups and from people that I've been talking to that there other than sort of the odd anecdotal issue of over gastrointestinal distress and things there aren't really any um, 
majorly reported sort of negative implications from taking the supplement. Yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think most of us now know that it's a pretty safe thing to use. And um, I, I, you, you made some comments about which type, which I think is the perfect segue to the next thing. Is uh, what we're talking about here is creatine monohydrate. Um, now, I know one of your favourite uh, topics as it relates to creatine is. Um, you know this this business of there's different types of creatine. Some of the claims made for these super duper uh, brands and uh, the the magic they apparently can can give over and above what we know about creatine. Do you want to just uh, delve into that a little bit in terms of uh, the various the various types of creatine that exist? Because when we talk about creatine, one cannot assume. Um, that everyone, you know, when that when 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 people are taking pills or supplements or powders or whatever, and they they say, "Well, I'm taking creatine," unless they're specifically taking creatine monohydrate, they could be taking one of these variants, and it may or may not be working. So, do you want to just review that for us? Yeah, sure. So that there are numerous other types of creatine formulations that, that are available, and we could probably do at least one other po- podcast on on just the number of different variants and getting into what they are and what they're purported to do, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I'm assuming you don't want me to talk for another hour or so on it. So, <laughs> no, no, we'll get so, back, we'll get back to that another time. I'll try to summarise, yeah. but I guess some of the more you know recent and common examples of things like uh, the so-called buffered uh, creatine. So you yeah. may have heard of that. Um, which is suggested to be absorbed more readily than the monohydrate, for example. And, and you look at that and you think, yeah, but, but given that there's a pretty high absorbance rate of creatine in any, in any case, and, and, and the same for monohydrate, it doesn't seem to be much of a, an issue to me. And, you know, with, even with that type of supplement, there are then this issue, there's this issue with it potentially being neutralized in the stomach unless it's protected by an enteric coating that's designed to protect the actual um, supplement you know, from, from, from the acid in the stomach. Um, there's others like uh, another one you might have heard of is creatine ethyl ester, for example. Um, and that's, again, suggested to be able to passively diffuse through the cell, uh, albeit, you know, again, a lot of this stuff is shown in in vitro rather than in vivo uh, studies. Um, but with that one, for example, there, there seems to be issues with its degradation to creatinine in the intestine, so actually not really helping much at all you've either got sort of liquid forms of creatine and creatine serums a couple of things that that did show slight benefit at least theoretically a few years ago was um, this creatine magnesium chelate and creatine nitrate Um, but again both of those are are very much under under researched and, and you know before we sort of get into that you whether they should be used over and above monohydrate we'd certainly need greater evidence. And I think that would be the case no matter what variant you're talking about. So I'm not necessarily sitting here saying all of these things, that the, the claims are wild, the claims are completely wrong or anything like that. But if you really want to bring it down to practicalities and brass tacks, I guess my point would be this, that although you've got numerous other options available, um, none of these other variants or formulations really seem to be any better at elevating the creatine content of the muscle or indeed it exerts in performance effects when, when compared to monohydrate. So then when you take it, my opinion would be that, you know, would be to use creatine monohydrate because efficacy has been shown. So like I said, there's, there's research, there's a lot of research out there on creatine monohydrate. It's predominantly what we use. So, you know, effects are more known. 
And, and equally, the flip side of that is non-effects are also relatively well known. But the other thing is, it's just simply cheaper than all these other variants. You can pay an awful lot of money for something that may or may not work. And most of the available evidence suggested it wouldn't work over monohydrate, which is far, far cheaper. Yeah, no, I, I, I think at its most basic level, I mean, that's, that's actually quite an important and yet surprising to many. You, you, I mean, if you do go out to the, the shops and stores or look online and you look at the different costs of some of these products it's quite amazing um, how much more expensive these fancy versions of, of creatine are and yet chances are as you said they're, they're at, the, at best no more effective um, so okay so we, we've, we've established the creatine monohydrate is the most extensive you know ver extensively studied and clinically effective form um, it can come in various forms like powders, pills, capsules. I mean, just quickly, is there any particular benefit over one form of ab administration than the other? I think largely, you know, that, that comes down to a little bit of, of personal preference and, and, and how it's, you know, how, how easy you find it to, to take it and whether one particular type of formulation does give you any kind of feelings of gastrointestinal discomfort. I mean, a lot of that comes down to sort of personal preference and ease of use, really, rather than purely effectiveness, I would say. Right, okay. So what about, um, you know, other foods? Like, you know, it, does creatine... I mean, it, uh, what I'm leaning to here is, do, do we just sort of drink it with a glass of water or... I mean, is there a particularly effective way of improving the uh, ability of, of uh, or the transportation, if you like, of, of getting creatine into the muscle? Well, ordinarily, you know, creatine has been shown for some years, probably since like early 1900s or something, that, 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 that creatine is, is pretty, pretty bioavailable. I mean, when you take it, it gets through the gut pretty effectively um, and into the bloodstream. And there have been, you know, plenty of studies showing the absorbance is, is somewhere fairly close to to a hundred percent. So, um, in that circumstance, it's, it's probably, you know, okay. In terms of increasing uptake, there was some, there was some decent, um, a few decent studies by by Paul Greenhouse Group at Nottingham a few years ago, where they looked at whether raising the insulin, the circulating insulin levels, could enhance the transport. Uh, because of an action on the actual transporter could enhance the uptake of the creatine into the muscle. Um, and, and like I said, there was some quite good evidence that doing that alongside a relatively high dose of, of carbohydrate or carbohydrate plus protein did actually increase uptake. Um, whether you're increasing uptake beyond what the ceiling effect would be or whether you're just, whether that just means you're increasing it more quickly in the muscle is a is a question i guess that still needs a little bit of answering but um okay well like so i guess i mean one way of looking at that is it's probably not that significant what you take it with is it i mean it, the the there may be some foods that may you know maybe with food rather than no food but at the end of the day getting it in is probably more important than what you take it with is that right yeah, I, th I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're if you're really trying to maximise the speed at which you get uptake, or, or you're you maybe maybe a generally you know you're a, you're a bit of a non-responder, then maybe looking at at some of these strategies might be you know relatively important. But I mean, I think broadly, if you're 
if you're just trying to you know to load then then my suggestion would be yeah broadly it doesn't yeah. make that much difference i i personally don't think although some people some people may well think it, it does yeah well i mean yeah you certainly hear different points of view and of course that's based on different amounts of evidence uh, and of course we have to be very context specific and be quite pragmatic about this whilst some methods may be shown to be slightly superior than others in the real world it's not really that big is it so um i don't think you know because uh, some people do it's like nutrient timing or uh, these other things which we've covered in previous podcasts there's a certain amount of anxiety that people can have where they're like oh shoot you know i i didn't take my creatine with carbohydrates my muscles are going to drop off or uh, i didn't have my creatine post-workout therefore i just wasted my workout i mean is, is there is there really anything to any of that um timing uh, uh, of the creatine I mean, again it comes down to you know if you're really trying to be sort of you know hyper organized about it then you know i think people then just end up getting far too stressed about it and i think probably the, the stress that they're putting themselves under is going to do more damage than anything else but yeah um but no, I mean, I think broadly, you know, I think it's been shown a number of different times in, in a few different ways of looking at it, that if you if you consume, you know, a high enough dose of creatine, you know, per day, you are going to load the muscle with creatine. Now, there are ways, like I say, of, of maybe speeding that up a little bit or maybe improving the response in some of those that otherwise don't respond particularly well. Um but but broadly, I don't think there's a need to get overly stressed about it. I mean, it may well be that you know sometimes putting um, the creatine in with a meal or putting the creatine in with with a, with another supplement or something like that, provided there's no cross reactivity, is a decent idea in just in terms of being able to remember to take the supplement. Right. Okay. So it's a practical issue. I yeah. Think. Yeah. No, I think, and I'm all about the practical issues with this. It's, it's it's very important to know the science, but we also need to put it into the context of the real world um so you mentioned earlier this business of responders and non-responders um what do you mean by that okay well i mean if we go back to one of the sort of early studies that that, that came out of um that, that came from roger harris actually who you mentioned earlier uh, it's a 1992 paper in clinical science and, and and basically they um they looked at sort of creating supplementation and, and giving creatine and basically what they did was they that they gave um, they gave the the, the the participants creatine and a couple of their participants I don't know if it was you know two or three of the participants that they had did not respond to, to creatine uh, monohydrate ingestion with an increase in muscle content and I think one of the reasons for that would seem to be that those participants already had a relatively high total amount of creatine in their muscle, and this seems to be relatively important to to, to whether um, you're going to respond to the supplement or not with an increase in your levels. This might be because of the the, the this that because this appears to be the ceiling effect for creatine in the muscle, so around 150, 160, depending on sort of which paper you look at, millimole per kilogram dry muscle. It seems to be very, very difficult to elevate your muscle content beyond beyond those beyond those levels. Um, and so, if you've got an individual who's already quite close to or at that level, then further up 
further supplementation is unlikely to increase their stores much, much further. So some people, you know, who've got a lower initial content, and in particular the individuals like uh, vegetarians, for example, who get a relatively low amount in their diet, will respond generally quite positively to, to creatine monohydrate with increased skeletal muscle content. But like I said, if you've got those individuals who are already at higher baseline levels, then then they might struggle to to increase further with supplementation. Yeah, no, that that's great. And I think it's important that people do realize that simply taking creatine, it's like anything, it, it's not a guarantee that it's going to quote-unquote work. There are a variety of factors that are necessary. I mean, is there anything else that's going to influence that, like hydration levels, for example? Mm, decent question, man. Not, not that I'm aware of. Yeah, aware of particularly. Yeah. So, so what would so what would um, be some potential side effects? And there's going to be there's going to be. I mean, we've already cleared up that there's probably not too many negative, uh, and by that I mean health related negative potential side effects, apart from extremely rare scenarios. Um, but some side effects obviously are going to include the you know the benefits. Um, I mean, f first things first. So, could there be an impact to the weight of an individual? Like, you know, you start taking creatine, and um, before we get on to training adaptations, I mean, might this have an impact on one's weight? Yeah. So, one of the things that you've got to you've got to look at, and I suppose that from a practical point of view, again, is that usually, yes, you do get an elevation in in weight relatively acutely with creatine supplementation. Which is largely, you know, thought to be due to the, to the water retention that also occurs. Um, so, if you if you take creatine, let's say, sort of, you know, your normal twenty grams a day, four times five gram doses over, you know, five seven days, usually you put on somewhere between a kind of about a kilo and a half, two kilos, somewhere around that kind of level. Obviously, there's a there's a reasonable degree of individual variation in that, and it depends on the extent of loading, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But as a broad rule of thumb, that's kind of roughly uh, how much weight you might put on. So that there is possibly a, in certain sports where there's a, a weight requirement, for example, then you know, that's got to be a practical consideration for, for sure. Yeah, no, and I think it's it's important, isn't it? Because sometimes people are like, wow, I've gained, you know, like two kilos after taking it for two weeks and they might make some assumptions as to what's going on they certainly haven't gotten fatter but it is a it's an increase in in their lean mass but it's not necessarily a steroid type growth of lean mass either though is it oh no 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 yeah it's not yeah so so can you just i mean so what exactly is happening then so we we've sort of cleared up a number of things here we know roughly what it's good for but uh what it's not good for but what I mean, what actually happens? So you ingest the the creatine, and then it it, it it ends up being delivered to the muscle tissue. Can you take us through a little bit of the sort of mechanisms behind that, and um, uh, uh, you know, so that we can sort of understand why taking it has these benefits? Well, I mean, you know, generically, yes, it really is. You know, down to blast tax, fairly simple. I mean, yeah, you you ingest it, um, it gets absorbed and taken up from the gut into the bloodstream obviously then once it's in the bloodstream it's then it then becomes available to to any tissue with a with a, 
a transporter to, to take it into that particular tissue. Um, like I said, absorbance is, is fairly high from creatine from the gut, so, so a, a pretty large proportion of what you take in actually would reach the bloodstream and be available to the tissue. Um, so it's, it's predominantly going to be taken into those tissues where synthesis doesn't necessarily occur, but, you know, if you look at it, um, you know, creatine is, is found most abundantly, obviously, as we know, in skeletal muscle, and undoubtedly the concentration is highest there, but it's also found in tissues like brain, liver, testes, kidney. So, um, yeah, pretty much anywhere where you've got, you've got a creatine transporter, you can take that up from the blood into, into that particular tissue. Brilliant. So, um, can you sort of also describe then how creatine is going? I mean, what what are the what are the main? I, I know we briefly got into this at the beginning, but I mean, what you know, why is someone going to take creatine specifically? So, what are the what are the main reasons to take creatine? Okay, so here maybe we we, we, we sort of take a, a more specific. So, if we're talking about exercise performance, which predominantly is, is, is probably historically what, we, what we've looked at with creatine supplementation. If we go back into the skeletal muscle, that's really where the focus is um, and, and what's really needed to fuel a muscle contraction. So in this sense, the skeletal muscle requires adenosine triphosphate, ATP. But the problem with that is that the muscle store is pretty, of, of ATP is pretty small. Um, so, for example, if you were going to, you know, if you were performing some, some really high intensity exercise, the ATP store would be depleted probably in a few seconds, two, three, four seconds, somewhere around there. So at that point, in order for the muscle contraction to continue, you've got to be able to resynthesize your ATP from the, the breakdown products of that ATP. So ADP, AMP or, or, in, or, and or inorganic phosphate. So bear with me a second. We, we, we can do this either aerobically or anaerobically, depending upon how hard we're exercising pretty much. But if we're exercising really hard, the, the processes that supply ATP aerobically occur too slowly to match the demand of ATP coming from the, the contracting skeletal muscle. So this is really where I guess, you know, creatine, phosphocreatine come in. So the phosphocreatine can be broken down by an enzyme called creatine kinase, and the creatine kinase can produce creatine in an organic phosphate. So it's this organic phosphate that can then be added back onto your ADP, for example, to resynthesize ATP. Okay, so what that basically does is that gives you more ATP to go ahead and, and, and contract your muscle. So. The benefit to that is that the phosphocreatine store is, is, is greater than the ATP store, so it offers you a means to continue muscle contraction at that higher rate, um, which some of the other processes can't, can't match. Yeah, this is, this, is, this, is, this is why we've got you on, Craig, because this is, this is the, 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 the proper rocket science behind creatine, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess. Yeah. So, okay. So, strength, power. Um, we're looking at improvements in things like speed of contraction. So, sprinting, intermittent sports, um, all the way through to helping people um, get a few more reps in their in their training and potentially improve uh, 
um, their training adaptations in terms of gaining lean muscle mass and those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, so, so broadly, if we're talking sort of in broad terms, um, the effect is largely, as you say, limited to those events requiring high intensity activity, and particularly those events requiring high intensity activity of a repeated nature. Um, and that tends to be more where it works rather than in those kind of longer, less intense endurance type activities. So, yes, it's um, those events requiring high intensity and potentially or, or most usually repeated high intensity activity. So there's a, a reasonable amount of evidence to suggest that creatine supplementation can enhance performance during, you know, short duration, maximal sprint type tasks. Um Definitely positive effects in, in, like I said, repeated high-intensity exercise performance, um, where and, and particularly where these these high-intensity bouts of exercise are interspersed with sort of short periods of recovery. Um, and certainly, there's some evidence around, as you said, you know, effects with resistance training exercise and in games play type activity, so you know, rugby, football, etc. There's less evidence, like there is with any supplement, there's less evidence in sports-specific scenarios, but there is there is some, um, including things like swimming, for example. Um, when we mention resistance training, there is some, some evidence to suggest that the creatine might enhance the responses to resistance exercise training specifically. So when you add creatine into uh, the resistance training program that you're undertaking, but Again, certainly not all studies have, have suggested this. So, you, you know, you do have to look at the balance of evidence, but that's, that's where positive effects have broadly been, broadly been shown. Right. And, of course, there are uh, certain benefits that are indirect too, aren't there? Um, and by that I mean, uh, for example, someone who might be an endurance athlete, they may not necessarily want to use creatine um, during their racing season because of the impact it has on their weight but there might be benefit in using creatine off season uh, to support strength and conditioning goals uh, and various other things is that is that a fair comment yeah i mean these are all strategies that 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 people can look at yeah i mean certainly you know in, in off season when you're weight training if you really wanted to try and maximize something then certainly for some individuals creatine um is definitely one to look at. Um, you know, I'm not going to necessarily say to anyone that, look, you definitely need a supplement. Um, you know, the, the first, you know, probably some general rules of supplement. And the first thing I always look, think of is, well, sort your training out first, sort your recovery out, sort your basic nutrition out. And then if you're looking for really, really small, but, you know, possibly worthwhile improvements in some of the responses that you're getting, then start to consider supplements. But it's you know one thing we should be clear on: I don't ever advocate that it's the it's the first thing you go to. Sort the other stuff out first. You know the basics are far far more important and far far more critical to to any responses or adaptation than supplements are. But you know they can be used um, in certain situations in certain individuals to improve certain things. Back to context. Yeah, no, it's my, as you know, it's my favourite word. And I'm pleased you say that because I think one message we're trying to get through on this podcast is this business of, look, at the end of the day, you, you need to do what's right um, on a sort of a, on a basic level with, you know, eat right, uh, so food first, 
Uh, make sure you get your training. You know, you, you've got to train right. You've got to get sleep right, balance life and stress and all those things. Supplements are only uh, supplements. They're not instead of. Um, but of of the few supplements that, that have been shown to be really quite useful in certain scenarios, creatine is, is certainly one of them. And we've covered quite a few different areas in this uh, podcast. In fact, we're pretty much sort of at the end of this now. So, um, I mean, you know, in terms of your overall uh, thoughts on creatine, uh, what we know about it, uh, uh, you know, in the context of not not necessarily an elite athlete, where, of course, there might be some very specific need for these things at you know, to make that smidgen of a difference that's the difference between, you know, getting a gold or, or not. But just from an average person who's popping down the gym, um, I guess we've got several types of people there. So we've got, we've got sort of the keep fit, just trying to be healthy. Uh, do they need creatine? And then the other side of that is those that are trying to change their physique, they want to gain some muscle. We're not talking professional bodybuilders here, but we're just talking about your average recreational sort of athlete who, who wants to look good in their swimming shorts. Is you know is is creatine at the top of their list? Um, what, what, I mean, you know, those are two sort of average, typical people that either might be listening or uh, are very much the most likely client of our listeners who are PTs or nutritionists or, or, or whatnot. I mean, it's probably one of those supplements that might be at the top of the list of supplements, if you, if you follow me. Yeah. Um, behind probably some some protein uh, supplements where necessary, etc. But I don't think supplementation is at the top of the list of what those people should be doing. I mean, that's coming back to the last comment, really. The first thing is sort out the training, because most of those people don't train appropriately so that's the that's the first thing to sort out mm. the second thing to sort out is how to recover properly like i said and then and then get the the basic nutrition right which is which is where i think you know those three things are where your your pts and your your sports nutritionist performance nutritionist dietitians etc can do the most benefit yeah no and i you know all that's sorted out and and you know there are particular things that you're trying to do or you know certain gains are proving really stubborn to to to, um to try and attain then possibly you know something like creating supplementation um a, a focused period of creating supplementation for example might be beneficial in those individuals sure but from a health point of view um, in, in those generic populations. I mean, certainly as long as there's a, you know, some intake of kind of, you know, meat and fish, probably there's not, you know, too great a requirement for, for, for taking large doses of, 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 of creatine. Um, you know, so, you know, pr- probably not. I mean, vegetarian individuals, again, might, there might be something they want to look at because largely they're, there are only really negligible amounts coming of creatine coming into their diet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I guess what you're saying, and I think it's fair to say generally about creatine because it is so safe, and I mean the benefits tend to outweigh the negatives, apart from those that are really you know smashing in huge amounts of of red meat and other creatine containing foods. Uh, you know, probably would benefit from it. Um, I mean, you do hear about some people saying you should take it and then cycle it on and cycle it off. Is there any, is there any logic to that other than 
trying to save money, but then it's such a cheap product. Uh, do you think you just you just could just keep keep taking it, or uh, do? I we mean, I, I think for for effectiveness, my my view would be that creatine doesn't necessarily need to be specifically cycled. Um, but equally, I don't think there's necessarily any harm in doing this. And again, from a practical point of view, if you're thinking about, um, you know, trying to to influence uh, a client or an athlete or whatever, then then not necessarily cycle, but it, it could well be a good idea to periodize creatine as well as other supplements because you, you could sort of almost like if you like periodize it around hard competition or training, where you might also be getting benefits to. To the belief effects of the effects of the supplement, not just the pure physiological or physical effects of the supplement. So, there are kind of those strategies that I know that some performance nutritionists may well in, employ, and I, I don't think that that's a, you know, a particularly uh, particularly problematic. Um, but I would suggest, I would suggest with any supplement, largely, to to probably have periods away from from the supplement if if it's a period of time where you don't particularly need it. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, um, a, a question, actually, I forgot to ask you right at the beginning when we were talking about loading is, uh, I mean, how how fast does it take um, before, you know, I mean, how, how much time would we need to take creatine for bef before we're fully loaded on average? I mean, is it is it weeks? Is it months? Uh, I'm, I'm sort of alluding to the pharmacokinetics here. Okay, so, so, so really broadly, I suppose, that the, the first thing is that kind of depends on dose. Yeah. So... I mean, traditionally, uh, a single dose uh, that was sort of first looked at was around this sort of five grams of creatine monohydrate, and that was largely because um, it was. I think it was a, again uh, uh, Roger Harris's paper in '92 that showed that that five grams can raise the, the the plasma creatine profile to a level that was sufficient to saturate the creatine transporter for, for skeletal muscle. And certainly, obviously, now that the, the majority of research evidence out there has used this kind of four times five gram per day strategy, and, and, and there's plenty of evidence to show that, that using that loading strategy, so four separate doses of five grams throughout a day, so a total of 20 grams per day, is sufficient to load the muscle in, in, in certainly in just a few days. So you're, you're talking probably somewhere between five and seven days. And without any shadow of a doubt, the majority of the loading to the muscle under that kind of a dosing regime occurs pretty quickly. Um, so one of the points to make, and you hear about this all the time, and, and you know you sort of hear about it in the gym and, and cringe somewhat, but but extending this sort of high dose over prolonged periods of time is there, there's probably no, well not probably there isn't any further benefit to doing that. And it basically just means that you're wasting your time and, and most importantly, your money. But if we go back to the original question, um, the other flip side of that is, of course, if you stop taking the creatine supplement for any length of time, then the increased creatine level that you've got in the muscle will gradually return back towards what it was before you started. So at that point, you might want to sort of start to... And that kind of takes, I guess, four, six, eight weeks, somewhere around that time frame bit individual but you know it will, it will return back towards the, the level at which you started so if you want to maintain that higher level over time then you could continue to use the the, uh, the supplement but a much much lower dose so something around you know a couple of grams is, it would probably be sufficient to maintain the the, the elevated content that you that you got from loading with four times five grams 
Um, of course, if time's not such an issue, then there is a, a bit of evidence emerging that you can you can supplement with much, much lower doses. So kind of maybe two and a half, three grams per day, for example. But the loading of the muscle will take a, a longer period of time, maybe, you know, a, a few weeks, two, three, four weeks. Um, but you are, you are by that strategy, still likely to achieve similar levels of creatine in the muscle than you would if you, you did the higher dose. It would just be over a, a longer period of time, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, they, you know, look, there's huge amounts of information there. We've sort of gone backwards and forwards. And uh, also, I'm pretty sure I, I, uh, I do apologize to the uh, listeners, but uh, I appear to have some workmen working on the outside of this building. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you can hear it, Craig, but I'm pretty I can aware hear of yeah. every now and again. Yeah. yeah, well, I've got one of these super duper microphones, so it's probably going to pick up uh, uh everything i'd hate to shatter the illusion for the listeners but i'm not in some bbc style recording studio i'm just in my office uh just like you but the um you know the technology here for recording these things is pretty awesome so it picks up noise so anyway i hope there isn't any of that weird noise sounds like people soaring and stuff but uh anyway look um i think we'll leave it at that um that's a huge amount of information and knowledge from you um i definitely want to get you back on other podcasts there's some other topics particularly uh you have a huge amount of knowledge also on uh, bone health and metabolism and how that relates to performance and various other things so we'll we'll definitely want to get into that but um you know it's been amazing to have you uh partake in this podcast craig I, i you know there's all kinds of gems that came out there i'm sure there's lots of stuff that people didn't realize or didn't know um and uh, uh you know i'm just hugely appreciative so thank you very much uh, thanks very much for for inviting me on it's always good to chat yeah good all right so uh that's the end of episode 16 of the guru performance we do science podcast um if you want to learn more about uh our podcast and future and upcoming uh podcast please go to guruperformance.com uh and then just click on podcast you can get access both on iTunes, uh, uh, analog, and also directly off the website. Also, you can learn more about this stuff in uh, in great detail if you're looking to get more educated in this. Um, I know that uh, Craig uh, teaches uh, and, and runs a program at Nottingham Trent. So for those of you that are wanting to learn from the man himself, do look at, he, he runs an MRES Master of Research program in uh, performance nutrition, can highly recommend that. He also um, lectures for us on the ISSN uh, diploma, which you can attend in London or um, do online. And we've got lots of videos of Craig lecturing on there for those of you that want to, you want to get into the, into all of that. Um, but um, for all things otherwise, uh, please come back to future episodes of the We Do Science podcast. Uh, I'm Laurel Bannock. Thank you all for listening.